says, congratulations. I said, well, well, on that 802 I ran last year with Tennessee's? He goes, no, on that seven you just ran. I said, I didn't run a seven. He goes, yeah, you did, dude. I was behind you because I spun. I had the best seat in the house. <laughs> and I said, no way. He goes, yeah, you ran a seven. So I sat there for probably 10 minutes before somebody told me because the, the ET guy didn't come running back, give me the ticket. Of course, it, you know, it's a big deal to us. It's not a big deal to the rest of the world. But anyhow, <laughs> so the bar comes walking up and he's just standing there. He says, so what'd you run, Turk? I said, I guess I want a seven ninety nine. And he goes, Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> I said, well, and then, then you know, he stands good. He goes, Yeah, that's what he ran. He goes, Oh man. He sticks in. Congratulations. It's time for Class Racing Today, the podcast for the NHRA Class Racing fan. Welcome back to Class Racing Today. ClassRacingToday.com is our website. This is episode 51, um, ClassRacingToday.com. If you go there, you can help support the show personally. If you get value out of the show, you get to decide what that value is and turn it into dollars and send it our way. Uh, another way you can show love to the show is by actually telling people about it and getting it out there to more and more listeners. Um, also, if you are watching live on Facebook, and it's possible you could do it not live, uh, but for, cert- for sure during the live stream, you can send stars on Facebook, and that's another way that you can help support the show. Uh, we do have uh, one person to thank for giving us a donation this week. Kelly Lane uh, sent a donation in. It says, I always love your interviews. A great job. So thanks a lot for that donation. Um, Bobby, you are, is it warm or cold there now? cold it's always cold i hate being here and uh i want to leave i want to move down south hoping to go to the gator nationals and get out of the cold don't worry it's not nearly as cold as it no (laughs) no we've been almost below zero most days uh for the last i think two or three weeks so uh yesterday it was above freezing and stuff starting to melt so it felt weird anyway i like it how's it going today pretty good busy night around 9 30 Last night, Eastern time, I get a message um, from a fellow stock eliminator racer that says, hey, have you seen uh, what's going on with these uh, shipping weights and combos getting changed? And I said, no. Like, I I did hear uh, something about, you know, a 69 ZL1, uh, you know, 427 Camaros, um, weight break changing. But then I went on NHRAracer.com last night. And I checked, and it looks like NHRA, I guess, verified all the shipping weights from like the last 60 years. And it has changed a lot of combos, natural classes. It doesn't change your horsepower rating, but it changes where you, where your natural class is, which has affected me in stock eliminator in both cars that I run because I am, I was a natural uh, M car in stock with my 90, 90 Mustang 5.0. And I couldn't run K unless I, you know, had to call my car a different year and actually take a horsepower hit to do it. Now I can move up to K in my 5.0 Mustang, which makes me happy. So this weight break thing actually helped me. And then in the 64 Mustang stocker I run in L stock automatic has now become a natural N car and is in Nancy. So now I can no longer run L in that car. I can only, you can only move up uh, one class or down one class in stock eliminator. So now I am gonna have to run m stock automatic is this so an unprecedented step by by the energy or have they done this before i it i've heard so it affected me somewhat lightly all i have to do is is move a class 
one class that I actually wanted to move to, and then the other car, a class that I don't really want to move to. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, from what I've heard, 1983 and 84 Camaros that are running um, with a big cam motor, I, I believe is what I was told. And there's so many different variations of, of motors for those Gen 3 Camaros that I can't keep up with. But there's like big cam, small cam, uh, high compression, low compression. I don't know if there's dish piston, big carb, little carb, what have you. Um, but there are cars that were being run in a specific combination that does not exist anymore from what I'm being told. So some of these 83 and 84 Camaros will now have to, I don't know, add maybe IROC Z or Z28 trim or, or claim a different uh, year and horsepower rating altogether. So anybody that wants to comment on that, any, any Chevrolet, anybody that runs those combos that wants to uh, fill me in on that, uh, please do. Um, lastly, I've heard of the, uh, the late uh, Firebirds, the Gen 4 Firebird and um, Camaros with the LS1s, I think, um, that ran in AA, A, and B stick have now been shoved down to like B, C, and D or something like that. So that's going to change. Um, that's going to change a couple things because people that were fitting those cars for the A stick challenge are now not even allowed to run A stick anymore. So, so does that affect? Uh, and I, I mean, I would ask him, but he is locked away uh, <clears throat> in a warehouse for the next few days. But uh, Brian, does that affect his ride at all? His combo? I don't think it affects Brian. He is still a natural B car. Mm. Uh, we looked into it last night, so he can run A, B, or C. Wow! And obviously, the horsepower ratings haven't changed, so he's he's fine. He, nothing happens to him. Although his shipping weight may have changed a little bit, it didn't change enough to where it moved him into a different class, a different natural class. Hmm. These Firebirds, from what I'm told, were actually their shipping weights came in lighter than the Camaros. And you can clearly, when you see a Firebird, I think it has way more ground effects and should have been a heavier car to begin with. And these manufacturers were were giving this shipping weight data to NHRA all these years, for like the last 60 years. And now NHRA went and verified them, I think, with a third-party website and came up with all new shipping weights. Or, so so uh, they're saying that the manufacturer's data was uh, <clears throat> maybe not correct? Yeah, I mean, who knows who's submitting these things? Just me running the small block forward. I can see some things that are just ridiculous. If you if you tear apart a Mustang 5.0 like I had, you pull the cylinder heads off of it, you would see that the pistons sit below the deck. If you if you spin it all the way up to top dead center, mm-hmm. you would see that the piston does not come out of the cylinder bore. However, the blueprints as submitted by NHRA, or as submitted by Ford to NHRA, say that my piston comes out above the deck by 13 thousandths which is just i don't think you would ever find that anywhere so i don't know where they got that number but as a result when i build my stalker mm-hmm. i have to um have my 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 piston coming above the deck and i think the rule is it has to come above the deck by at least one thousandth and then you make up the uh the deck height with a head gasket mm-hmm. so some of the blueprints that are submitted are a little bit ridiculous and off cylinder head volumes can be pretty crazy you can get a number that's just you just can't even get to i don't know how they got the number for some of the heads that that i'm required to run so i don't know i would check the blueprints too because on nhraeracer.com it said um blueprints were all were were verified and shipping weights were verified so everybody out there double check 
your natural class may have changed. Your blueprints may have changed. You don't want to get disqualified for something that, you know, that you didn't double check. I mean, it, ignorance may not get you out of this one. So uh, that's my advice to you. Wow. Yeah, a lot happened. I, I was, everybody was texting me last night. Like I'm the, <laughs> like I had knew anything and, and maybe I'm supposed to know more about these changes, but I'm not an SRAC member. I don't know this stuff. And um, people wanted me to call like an emergency. Uh, 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 Chris Valentine said, fire up an emergency podcast right now at 10 o'clock at night last night. And I said, That's oh, hilarious. Man, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I got a long day tomorrow. So wow. uh, yeah, double check your stuff. All right. That's, that's, that's my advice to you. Um, however, today we have a, a wonderful guest coming on the show. Very knowledgeable, funny, very tall gentleman too. I got a picture with him at PRI and he definitely had a whole half a body on me. Um, Some would say that wouldn't take but, much, Bobby. <laughs> yeah, I know. Usually, usually a, a quarter body on me, but this guy had a half a body right. on me. Somebody, somebody commented like, is, is Jeff Turk really that tall? And somebody else was just like, no, Bobby's just that small. So uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I met Jeff Turk at PRI. Uh, he pilots the Blackbird uh, Dodge Challenger. He was the first um driver to go into the seven second range in these in the factory uh car the the holly factory shootout which we will show you a video of that run today right we can get that to work right craig oh yeah and um we're gonna have a nice little discussion he is moving into the new and sounds very exciting the new factory x class i think it's still called factory x it was factory experimental it was called like fx so one of those but it sounds it sounds really cool. Ten and a half inch wide tire, five speed manual transmissions, tube chassis. Uh, these cars are probably going to go low sevens, and I would assume dip into the sixes. Maybe our guest will be the first one to, to take him into the sixes. We'll we'll have to ask him what he's up to. But everybody, let's give a nice warm welcome to Jeff Turk. Jeff, how you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing great. Thank you for joining us too. I'm uh, really excited to. Uh, Get a little insight into this factory X. Jeff, what's the what's the proper terminology for it now? Is it called factory X? It's called factory X presented by Holly. Don't don't forget that presented by Holly part. Presented by Holly. <laughs> Holly's got their name on a lot of things here. And uh, hey, there might be some drag racers that we used to work there. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna talk about that because you you were an employee of Holly, or you were you were running the show there for what two years recently? I did work there for two years. I was lucky enough to be part of that great team and help them tune their game up and then take it even bigger and go public. And when they want public, I spent enough time as an executive in public companies. I decided I needed to go back to racing. So I did that. Uh, that was always the plan. But but the Factory X thing and Holly's name, all, that, that, all the credit to that goes to Robin Lawrence, which many of you guys know Uncle Robin and, you know, fantastic guy and always at the track supporting Holly. The reason I have a Holly on my car and the reason I got a job at Holly is Robin Lawrence. And so, you know, I can't really give him enough credit. Yeah. I met him at PRI also and had a nice, interesting conversation with him. Um, yeah. I like the fact that Holly is so present in the sportsman racing world. I loved the fact that fast XFI was so present back in 2015 when I purchased my first real system and and they were at the track. I, I wish I like when they're all at the track. I like when they're battling. I like the competition. Who's better? Holly's better. Yep. Fast is better. You know, big stuff, whatever. Let's, this is America. We love competition. We want, we want, it, it keeps, it keeps the creative process going and going. Everybody's striving to have the better uh, product. So hopefully we can get that going again. 
Well, I've been through. I've been through about. The, uh, I've been through. I've been through about all of them. Uh, a, I actually started with fast. Then I had an AEM. Then I had a Hall Tech. Then I had. Well, actually, I had big stuff in there. And then on to Holly. And once I got to Holly, that's where I stayed. No, I guess that pretty much speaks to what I think. And that was before I had a job there. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, you hear that, everybody? Holly is the uh, preferred brand of today's guest. So um, <laughs> let's let's talk about your let's go back a ways here. Now, back to your back to your younger years. What got you into drag racing? And did it have anything to do with your your experience at GM? Were you ended racing before uh, messing with uh, General Motors, and um, or did that was it the other way around? It was it was the I was into drag racing well before I got to General Motors. Probably the reason I went to General Motors Institute, which is what it was called when I went there, was because I was into drag racing. So it's kind of the other way around. But my drag racing started because when I was thirteen years old, having spent most of my young boyhood dreaming of being a fighter pilot, I found out I can't see. If I took my contacts out right now, I wouldn't know. I couldn't find the blackbird back behind me. Uh, and so I walked out in the driveway. My brother had driv- drug home an old 66 Pontiac Tempest with a 326 two-barrel in it and was doing some work on it, saying he was going to turn it into a race car. And we were pretty much low-income guys, and, you know, my mom and dad couldn't help us, and yet he was going to do it. We had a great friend that was kind of a mentor named Dean Barding, had a 57 show with the blue tinted glass and tilt front end like a gasser from this, you know, 57 Chevy with a big block in it. Bracket racing had just started to kind of take hold. So people that were lower income could do it. And my brother's going to turn this car into a drag car, drag it down to the strip every Saturday and go racing. And I said, Hey, I can't fly fast planes now. I got to make cars go fast. Why don't you teach me how to make cars go fast? And so my brother, Don Turk, who races in stock with a T37, 71 T37 now, <laughs> he's the guy who pointed me in that direction and then had the patience to start teaching me how to work on cars. And, uh, and I, that kind of started the obsession. I bought my first race car with a 69 Dodge Charger with 383 in it when I was 15, before I had my license. I bought my first tow truck from my dad by trading off a dirt bike I'd paid for with dirt, you know, paper route money and shit. And I, uh, I bought the, sold that and bought my dad's old 68 Chevy pickup to tow the flat tow, the, the Charger to the track. And then I started bracket racing every weekend when I was 16 years old. Actually, I started going to the track every weekend when I was 13. I started driving when I was 16. And then and then, as I graduated from high school, I wasn't going to go to college. I was a machinist. Uh, I had gone half day to a machining shop class to be a machinist. But it was the kind of one of the deep recessions, 1981, in this industrial city I grew up in with no jobs for machinists. And my principal in my high school, who knew I kind of was in and out of trouble all the time, and had fast, loud cars said, Hey, there's a school called General Motors Institute where you go to school three months and then you work three months, you go to school three months. And I said, You know, I hate school. He said, Yeah, but you only have to go three months and you go back to work. So <clears throat> I, got, uh, I got accepted academically because I had good test scores. I wasn't a very good student, but I had good test scores. And I got into GMI. And then I was trying to find a place to work. You got to find a, a place that you're going to work and they got to accept you. They don't and they find you a place. Me, they don't have like no, a. Uh, they, well, they keep sending you to places, and the, and the local people got to decide where they like it because you're going to be their employee, the General Motors employee. It's not really a school; it's really an employment thing. And so that didn't go well because it was a foundry and it was a locomotive shop. And I told my brother, "Man, I really want to work on cars." And he said, "You know, I went down to Bowling Green for that lawsuit. We were down here racing the Division Three 
ET bracket finals when I was, uh, when I was 15 and I was riding in the back pickup truck, my brother got hit and he had to come back for a lawsuit three years. And he saw the Corvette plant being built. He said, man, this Corvette plant says Chrysler Air Temple. They got a sign that says new home of Corvette. Why don't you call them? So I called them and they said, yeah, we don't have any students down here. If you want to come down for an interview. So I came down to Bowling Green, Kentucky, not 20 miles from where I'm sitting right now and, and got a job offer to go to General Motors and student work at Corvette. So that's how I kind of started my career. That's and awesome. then what did you do? Yeah. What was your title there? What'd you do? Well, at General Motors Institute, this is training program where you go to go to school three months, go to work three months, back and forth. You don't ever have a break. There's there's no parties at school. It's like in the it's in the center of downtown Flint, Michigan, which I would never recommend anybody go to. Uh, anyway, it's not all that bad, but it, it was very different kind of school. Your teachers or professors were General Motors research and development engineers. Usually had PhDs, but had tons of experience. And they, before they retired, General Motors sent them to the school to teach. And then they just kind of had a program to break you down. I mean, they just kept piling on until people cracked. It was really part of their training program to to breed new executives. And then when I graduated. Uh, Roger Smith, the accountant running the place, hated GMI because it was like this inside mafia school and all the senior executives, many of them came from the school. Obviously, have a big advantage having worked there from 18. And he didn't like it, so he was going to get rid of the school. They've now renamed it called Kettering Institute and taken it private. And he wanted to get rid of GM being run by all these GMI guys uh, who are trained to be you know, automotive executives and engineers. Anyway, so it didn't really work because the top five folks at General Motors today are all GMI graduates who I who I graduated with my classmates and Mary Barra, the first female CEOs, one of my classmates, and then several of the top five people are all GMI guys. So anyway, it's a great school, great opportunity for me. I was always a Mopar guy. My brother raced Pontiacs and he had a 71 duster on the street that he got busted going 141 and a 55 in. And I thought, why don't you race Mopars? I mean, what the heck, man? Why don't you, you know, these seem like a lot faster. And I got the hooked up on the 69 Charger deal. And I've raced Mopars since. Even as I went to Corvette, I drove a 73 Cuda with a big block on the street and outran my bosses on the way home in their Corvettes. <clears throat> and then I blew it up qualifying at a beach bend, <laughs> trying to qualify for their team that was going to go to the division finals which I qualified for and I was in the last race trying to win some money. And I, I was racing a guy with open headers and didn't know my shift cable broke and over revved the motor and showed about three push rods through the stamp steel rocker arms. And, uh, I walked for about a week in a town where I really didn't know anybody. And I lived in one mobile home and I, I had to get home and all that. So that was the end of my uh, street and strip racing. But when I graduated, I brought that car back out and I probably had the best season of my life. I think I was in, went to eight races and six finals and won five of them. In bracket racing, I think I had a chip on my shoulder. My brother told me I got, you know, I got rusty and I needed to tune it up. And so I had to bring it back out and show him. But so I've been at this for a while. In fact, the, the 69 that came out of the, I don't, I don't, I don't keep a lot of things because I'm always changing cars and stuff and programs. But my 69 sitting over there back behind me against the wall came out of the charger. So that's, that's kind of my long journey into drag racing and, and so many things as I think about my life as a 58 year old have changed over my life, you know, jobs and life partners and circumstances. But one thing has always been consistent. I drag race. I drag race every year, yeah. <laughs> something or something or another. I'm always drag racing. Something, so, well, how did you got transition him. then from the bracket racing uh, world into the class racing world? When did you start running stock eliminator? 
well, before the show started, we talked about, I, I worked for Caterpillar for 25 years and they moved me all over the place and ended up in North Carolina for a little while and realized there are actually nicer places to live than the frozen North. And anyhow, as I was down there, you know, it was a state with 11 drag strips, mostly IHR back then when IHR was actually pretty, pretty strong back then. And, uh, my brother called me and said, we're building a, I'm going to build, I'm about this old GTO, 68 GTO. I'm going to make it a class car. I'm talking a class car. Well, those silly rules are, and you got to spend all kinds of money and you can't go, you know, there's all these restrictions, you know, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I said, all right, I'll look into it. So then I found IHRA. Uh, I've been to Rockingham a few times with my old Barracuda and, and they had a, they had a crate motor class where you could build from parts, a big block Mopar, that was classified as the 440 crate motor. So I found a 73 Roadrunner and put the 440 crate motor in. That was my first stock eliminator car. That's when I transitioned to stock eliminator. And that was probably about 1999. And I've run stock, super stock, and then, of course, factory shootout ever since. Yeah. So let's talk about the Blackbird there. That's a 2015 Dodge uh, Challenger drag pack. What, you know, what, what got you interested in that? factory showdown class where you now reside well somewhere along the journey you know as a as a mopar kid and a mopar enthusiast you know if you ever watch a hemi run on a late summer night and the burnt rubber wafting through the air and the smell of burning racing fuel and the hemi comes to the starting line and you know does a half track 100 foot wheel stand and a 66 belvedere uh you got hemis you want a hemi you know that's like your dream and of course, they're very expensive. They were very expensive then versus, you know, like a big black Mopar, a small black Mopar. And so uh, somewhere along the line, I realized that all this work at Caterpillar paid off and I had all this money in the bank. I forgot I had it was in stock options and I can buy a Hemi car. Oh. And I, 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 I moved my way into this class called Top Stock in IHRA. And then the year I got in there and really made my car run good and look like a threat, they decided to make it a buy invitation only and I wasn't invited. Long story, but anyhow, uh, so because they'd seen how much ground I'd made in one year, and they're like, "Yeah," and so I, I didn't get the invitation. So it kind of it, it kind of put a chip on my shoulder versus IHRA. So I decided I'm going to race in HRS for my brother races. And so anyway, I got on racingjunk.com, found a '68 Hemi car going together, '68 Barracuda, and uh, and called the guy and. Turns out it's Mike Roth that MR2 performance builds a lot of these factory shootout cars, almost all the fast ones. And, and, uh, he said, yeah, I don't know why you're calling me. It's not for sale. Anyway, the owner didn't tell him. So I bought the car about half done. And then Mike and I made a deal. I'd help and he'd work hard. And if you got it done by a certain date, I'd give him a bonus. And so we busted butt and we built a 68 Hemi car. And I think, uh, I bought it in January and I went down the track first time in April. I was half done when I started to give B credit. Anyway, so that was my first in Superstock H. It was, and, and in Superstock H, then, of course, they had all the Hemi shootouts and heads up classes, but I was going to be a bracket guy with these cars. And they told me, you can't win a bracket. You can't win, you know, you can't win stock Superstock. You can't win the Superstock Eliminator with a 68 Hemi car. They're too finicky, you know. So I said, bullshit, you can. And I, I wanted to prove I could. And uh, as I went down that journey, I wanted my own engine program because the time, if, if you wanted to go fast, get by a Westcott engine and compete against him, which I thought wasn't too smart. So I was uh, working on my Hemi program with an engine shop called Steve Morris Racing Engines. And he said, why don't you just buy my business, help me run it, straighten it out. 
I said, all right. So I bought Steve Morse racing engines and that's where I did my Hemi program for myself and a guy named Daryl Marvel. And so I ran Superstock AH. I, I got the heads up bug, you know, I did go seven rounds of the division and missed, missed winning it by a, by, by a loss in the final in the seventh round. Uh, and I was running the car uh, that week. You went then with the age. Uh, I think it was like eight seventies or something. It, I was, what happened the year we finally got our act together and caught Westcott. We had two engines and I gave my customer the best engine and he went to uh, Indy that year. There were 28 of them and he qualified fourth. It was Westcott, Westcott and Reigns and then my car. So in two years, we went from not being a player in 68 Hemis to having a second fast car, but then things kind of blew up. A bunch of guys in the East Coast got together and figured out straight to push rods out a little more and get another 500 RPM, and then all your parts were junk. Uh, and all my engine program, both for my customer and me, was junk. We we're gonna have to start over. And these were very expensive. You need to cast iron hemi cylinder head, and you spend eight thousand dollars on it later. And if you have one bad valve train incident or anything, you start over with that cylinder head. Mm. I mean, that's how crazy you know the '68 hemi stuff was. Just it still is somewhat crazy, but. Anyhow, bottom line is that's how I got heads up racing. Once I got that bug and started running heads up classes, and I won a class called Top Superstock where they made the Hemis add a bunch of weight, and then they let us run L88 Corvettes and Thunderbolts and, you know, all the badass, you know, Superstock A stuff. And kind of equalized the Hemis by putting weight on them. And I won that. I won that race up in Milan. And so I, I got a taste of first blood and heads up and heads up racing. I also, my bank account also got to feel what that was like. <laughs> uh, and, and, and my engine shop was kind of, uh, falling apart a little bit on me. And I was trying to be a Caterpillar executive working lots of hours, you know, six, seven days a week. And I decided I got to simplify my life. So I put a gen three Hemi in the super stock AH car, uh, and ran an FGT and was kind of the first pioneer of putting a modern Hemi in an older Hemi car. Mm-hmm. And that, that worked out pretty well. I had some engine issues as we pushed the, you know, the Gen 3 Hemi platform and Superstock. And then uh, and then I wisely switched engine builders to BES and started working with BES, who Tony welcomed me to be a participant in my engine program, not just a spectator and write checks. And great partnership was formed, and I ran his 5.7 uh, NA Hemi and Superstock for a year. It was a fantastic year. And then... They said they were going to build a supercharged drag pack. And I'd almost bought a supercharged Cobra jet because I wanted to go fast again in the eights and run it in super stock. And I, there was an old super stock age guy over there, Randy Hopkins, run one. And I walked over one day sitting in his laptop, you know, typing away on the keyboard. I'm over there pulling the valve train apart, you know, running the valves, you know, taking both carburetors apart, rejetting and all the shit 68 Hemi guys do. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I walked over to him. I said, Is this as easy as it looks? He goes, Oh, yeah, you got to have one of these. So I almost <laughs> bought. A super, you know, I wanted a Mopar, but they didn't have a supercharged package and they hadn't made a drag pack since I think 2011. So then they announced in 2015, they were going to do it and then they were going to have a supercharged combination. So I was the first guy to give them my check and I was first in line for the first 2015 drag pack, which is sitting behind me. Now, right. I didn't end up not being, ended up not being the first one. It's the only flat black one, but it's the, uh, and they painted it for me that color, but it, it was actually, I think number 13 by the time it got built. Unlucky 13 it was. Oh, well, it was very lucky. It was the first car in the sevens. Uh, how'd you come up with the name Blackbird, though? Let's get on that. Uh, because you wanted to be a pilot? Yeah. I mean, you know, I always wanted to be a pilot. I just didn't end up with that. So I just said, I'll make my fast cars named after the plane. It was, you know, it's the world's fastest plane. And because uh, it can take off and land. 
And so I named it the SR354 Blackbird. And I had to go through my late wife's uh, interrogation on why you'd name a car after a plane. And she thought it was stupid. And then the flat black paint job was kind of controversial because for the first time in my life, I got a car that comes with a factory body that's perfect. And I painted it flat black. <laughs> so some shiny, cool color like I grew up on, you know. Anyway, but but I always believed in names. My cars have always had names and I kind of view myself as just the driver of the car is really the, is the thing, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's, it's, it's the show it's, it's, it's personality. And I just happen to be the driver of it right now. So we named it Blackbird. And then when we, when we switched to Cobra jets for a couple of years, we named that X 15 because X 15s were a rocket plane. They weren't really a plane because they didn't take off and land. They dropped off the wing of a B 52 and those were faster than the SR 71. So I was determined to show I could make Cobra jets go fast too. We, we ran the X-15 for a couple of years. All right, but wasn't the Mustang, dumb question, could make me sound stupid right now. The Mustang was named after the P-51 uh, Mustang? It, 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 I don't know. I don't know if it was or not, but I do know that I looked at that paint scheme with like the Tiger Shark and I, and I decided I'm into fast things. So the X-15 okay. was my name. Anyway, can you get LASIK surgery and go become a pilot like today? Or uh, have you ever become a were you ever able to fly anything? Did you ever take like pilot lessons? Become a yeah, a little bit, but not not as much as I wanted to. Because I was, you know, I want I wanted speed. It wasn't just flying. I wanted to I wanted to feel like it was what it was like when you kick the afterburners on, pulled it back, went straight up vertical and thundered oh. through the sky. You know, I wanted I wanted that kind of thrill. And I and I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I get a job big enough in media or something, can I go get a ride? You know, sometimes they come, air shows come and they give one of the local TV casters a ride or something. I'm like, can I pose as a TV? You might get hooked up on that deal. No, it, it, truth, truth is, be, well, truth I'll is, throwing up on the uh, pilot's uh, dashboard there. So, <laughs> well, truth is, is you were making uh, comments about I'm half a person bigger. I, I know you were talking about my belly as much as my height. Yeah. I am. I am working on that because we got to get these damn cars down to 2650, these FX cars. But anyhow, uh, you know, I would have never made it as a pilot. I was too big. But you'd make a great pilot. Move that seat up for me. I'll get that car down yeah. to 2650. Yeah, there you go. So right, anyway, so, that's how that's how that's how the Blackbird came about. Well, the Blackbird. So now, um, it sounds like BES. That's Tony Bischoff in yep. where's he? Indiana is. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's in building their engines. Senses. And your your yep. your coordinate. It's a coordinated effort. You, you have an yep. engine program going with him. Um, the actual like the car though, um, built by by Chrysler there or whatever. Did did you have like how does it work for Chrysler? Do they? I know for the Cobra jets like Chuck Watson was building the uh, the Cobra jet mustangs and or you could get a body in white and take it to your local builder like a, a bnb or something like that and get one built right um how did it go for your the blackbird there well the 2015s i think the they were gonna they had to build 50 for homologation i think they built uh 25 supercharged and 35 na's or vice versa and you know i had number one originally but then i asked them to paint it black and that somehow shuffled in the line and ended up with number 13 but when i picked it up i asked them not to put the cage in it they would normally put a cage in an 850 cage. And of course I wanted a 750 cage because I had aspirational goals that nobody believed at the time were possible, <laughs> but I, I kind of thought they were anyway. And, and uh, so I got it without the cage and painted flat black and it came with a, a stock 2.9 liter Whipple. Uh, it was a truck engine block. Uh, it was actually like a six one or six two block. And then it had what they call BGE, uh, this big gas engine, uh, 
Gen 3 aluminum from the factory cylinder heads that have been CNC'd to the rules. And Tony Bischoff actually was the guy who developed that package for Chrysler to put in those cars. And so when I first brought it out, it had a 2.9 liter pulse supercharger. It was different. It had factory cylinder heads, literally from production lines, truck parts, and it had a truck engine block, a cast iron block. And that's what they came with. And they came with no air intake. So the throttle blade was sitting behind the radiator <laughs> and you just sucked air from behind the radiator. And so it wasn't, it wasn't seen as going to be a very competitive package in the factory shootout stuff. And, and, and from my stint as a heads up guy, Superstock AH, I wanted nothing to do with heads up. I knew that was going to be a rich man's game. Uh, I'm, I'm a lucky and blessed man, but I'm not incredibly wealthy and say that. And uh, so I didn't want to spend you know, a million dollars a year, $2 million a year, trying to keep up people in factory shootout. And I said, I was going to run super stock. So the first race us nationals was, uh, in 2016, after I got the car delivered early in 2016, we did work to put the cage in it. And Mike Roth did a fantastic job on it. And of course you can't modify the suspension. You can't, there's all kinds of things you can't do. And you know, all these little things you can, you know, the storing stock, super stock. Anyway, so I got the car from him finally in June or July immediately it was quick with even the stock factory engine in it uh it had a fast system on it by the way to start with no it had big stuff three big stuff three this car did anyway and and uh started running it and i was running super stock and of course we could be number one qualifier and we went with soft index and so really had it throttled back to run one second under or 1.1 under just to be number one qualifier went to the u.s nationals with it you know qualified pretty well uh and and ran class against Ray Skillman, you know, Bill Skillman's dad and, uh, could have beaten him, but I want to get torn down. <laughs> so I, I intentionally detuned it anyway, but the heads up bug got back in me and, and Dale Aldo, who was working as a Mopar motorsports marketing guy came to me and said, why aren't you running this new drag? I didn't even know this was a new drag back. Cause it's not white. And why aren't you running it in the shootout? I mean, right now you're running 90 pounds heavier in the super stock class. You got you know, you're, you're basically stock limited or legal and you're running super stock and you, you know, you got 90 extra pounds in over what they carry and you'd be qualified for the show. If you just ran over there, I said, cause I don't really want to spend the money, Dale. And he's like, we need you, man. We need you somebody out there running these cars. So I said, all right, well, if you can give me a little help and we talked what little help meant. And then, uh, I said, all right. And then I called Tony Bischoff up and I said, stop building that super stock motor. We're going to, we're going to put a stock limiter cam in it. We're going to run stock limiter. I'm going to run this heads up factory shootout thing. And he said, all right. He got excited. He's a heads up guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I talked to, I talked to Mike Roth who hates this story today. He hates hearing me telling it. And I said, I, I'm going to go run that factory shootout deal. And he said, well, you know, people like Barton are over there and Holbrook are over there. And Jeff, you know, I, I don't know that I'd go do that. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he's kind of almost like my little brother. We've known each other for so long. And I've watched him grow and develop as a businessman and so successful in building cars. And, you know, I'm like looking at him like, is this like a little brother telling me I can't do something? You know, and then he says, well, you know, he'll tell you today he didn't say I couldn't do it. He said it would be stupid and I'd spend a lot of money, which that part probably is true. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> so anyhow, I, he said, you'll never outrun part. Doesn't matter how many years you try. I said, all right, we're going to find out. And at the end of 2017, it was the fastest factory shootout car in the country. won 802 and FSA. So it was the fastest stock limiter car ever in history. And I almost made it to sevens that year. But thankfully, I didn't because then Holly decided to pay $10,000 for that the next year. And that's when I got there. But but the car, 
you know, Mike Roth and Tony Bischoff and, and Jason Cohen and the Cohen engineering guys, you know, these are my partners. You know, I, I am a small team myself pretty much does everything else and puts it all together, takes apart, helps develop the engines and works hard on getting the converter and gears and all that stuff. Right. And, uh, you know, but it's, it's not really, it's, a, it's, a, I think the Blackbird is its own thing. And I just have been lucky enough to be part of its life and lucky enough to drive it and lucky enough to have had the people in my life that, that helped me get it done. And, and, uh, and I got really lucky making that first seven second run. I went from probably nobody knew who I was or I've been drag racing for 40 years to all of a sudden at least 5,000 people knew because they watched the video. Yeah, that's cool. And we're going to watch that video right now. We're going to try to, let's see how technologically advanced I'm getting here. So this is Jeff Turk making his seven second pass, the first seven second pass in factory shit on history. Now this was at an NMCA race, correct, Jeff? It was, yeah. Okay. And this was back in uh, 2018. Yes, it was. The ten, the ten thousand dollar program was only in an MCA, so obviously I wanted to do it there because that's where you got paid big money. That's where you got paid. All right, so let's take a look. Jeff Turk running sub eight second pass. Here we go. Looks um, pretty really boring out there. You get out there on them, and let's see this elapsed time seven ninety nine six at one hundred and seventy miles an hour. Yeah, and, and because they let us run in order of our points finish, and I only ran two NMCA events the year before I'd focus more on NHRA, I had to run like 10th car back. So I had to watch Holbrook run, and then I had to watch Barton run. Of course, those were real contenders to get in the deal, too. And I saw Barton with like an 8026 ahead of me. So I knew I was, you know, I, I still had a shot when I pulled the line. But that pass, you know, it, looks pretty smooth and clean and doesn't wiggle around doesn't do a big wheel or anything of course in the car it's pretty boring and <laughs> when i came off the track we got in this big line behind the et shack down here at the end of bradenton and we're waiting to go and and uh the guy who i was running the other lane hughes comes walking up and sticks his hand in the door and says congratulations i said well, well on that 802 i ran last year with tendencies he goes no on that seven you just ran i said i didn't run a seven he goes yeah you did dude i was behind you because i spun i had the best seat in the house <laughs> And I said, no way. He goes, yeah, you ran a seven. So I sat there for probably 10 minutes before somebody told me because the, the ET guy didn't come running back, give me the ticket. Of course, you know, it's a big deal to us. It's not a big deal to the rest of the world. But anyhow, <laughs> so the bar comes walking up and he's just standing there. He says, so what'd you run, Turk? I said, I guess I want a 799. And he goes, yeah, bullshit. <laughs> I said, well, and then, then you know, he's, he's gonna, he goes, yeah, that's what he ran. He goes, oh man, <laughs> he sticks in. Congratulations. So anyway, it was, it was a, it was a very unusual day. My wife was, uh, my late wife was in her initial cancer treatment and forced me to go. I had no intent to be there. Uh, in fact, the car had been parked since November. I put it in the trailer the night before I went. The last time I touched it was putting it in the trailer between November and putting it in the trailer uh, to go down there. And then I, of course I had a bunch of issues when I first got there, the transmission had to be rebuilt and that all became a big drama. And then, and then it goes out there and does that. And, and my wife who was, you know, at home from her recovering from her first round of chemo was watching it live. So she knew like an hour before. So when I finally got back to my phone, my text was blown up, you know, all these people knew before I did, but uh -huh. anyhow, it was, it was a, it was one of those days, you know, you do this for, I guess I'm, I've been do, out racing almost every weekend for 46 years. And there's a few days that just stand out. Obviously, that'll be one of them for me. I'm a, I was lucky. 
had great I had a great supporting team. Of course, I was helping the DSR guys back then. And uh, we had kind of formed up as a team and we were all working together and I was doing the engine development for all the cars and, and they had actually probably the same opportunity I did, but I got a little more aggressive with some changes I made in the transmission and they didn't really want to make those changes till I proved they would work. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of how, that's why, that's why now you were having tra- transmission issues. You need you know you had the trans apart you had you know ups delivering some parts to you to get it back together ups guy shows up you say hey got any boxes on there for jeff turk what's he say he said no don't have any we didn't get any from cohen or anybody so you don't have any parts on here and i said was this the last truck today it was saturday he goes yeah and we ain't coming back out here tomorrow and i said can we go back on the truck and look man because i I, this app says it's supposed to be on the truck and he goes all right i'm pretty sure he goes in there Big, two big boxes with Jeff Turk's name on them from Jason Cohen. And then David Cohen, a 70 plus year old man who spent some time in retirement, came over to the track in a five gallon bucket, three tools, and rebuilt two turbo 400s on my on my uh, bench in my little trailer that I used to with. Oh, wow. That was a pretty, yeah. But anyway, so it, it, was, a, it was a good day. And, and uh, that was a good season because, you know, it gave my, surprisingly it gave my wife and I both something to focus on besides her treatments and, and the impending uh, possibility that, that ultimately played out that she would die of cancer. And anyhow, the bottom line, despite how that sounds like you wouldn't want to be doing that while your wife's going through that uh, after that race and how much that charged her up and, you know, how much she could see time slipping through all our fingers and we got to take, take advantage of it. Uh, she told me to get out there and race, you know, told me when I went down to Florida, you come home with a seven second time slip and some wind slips. Cause I want to see, get some winds too. And I just go fast and you don't, you don't, you don't have those things. You don't come home. <laughs> so that's, that's what my wife told me. Hey, it played out and here I am. And so this chapter unfolded into the 2018 season where we won between Lee and I, we won both championships. I won the NMCA. She won the HRA pretty much per the plan, the game plan. And we both helped each other. Then at the end of the 18 season, you know, Mopar said, Hey, we got this team with Schumacher, you know, we've appreciated our relationship. You've helped the team, but I don't really think we need a relationship anymore. And the four guys were at my trailer about 15 minutes later saying, would you like to run a Cobra jet? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, what kind of help do you need? And I said, okay, this is kind of really jump in this program and, and help you guys on the engine all the side, which I gave them all the data for all the Ford teams. Uh, you're going to have to, you know, pay my consulting firm some money to do this engine development work. It's going to be expensive. We've got to do it fast. And by the beginning of the 2019 season, uh, I was working on Tascas and Randy Eakins, Cobra Jets and and by the very end of the season, only two teams had won in Cobra Jets, the Tasca and Turk team, which included Randy Eakins, and Skillman. So that 2019 year, the, 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 the Cobra Jets were dominant. I think it was the last, last race of the la- that first year that, that Holbrook really stepped it up and took a win. But, you know, there's a lot of Cobra Jets out. That was a very competitive package. Uh, you know, all the people who follow this little wrinkle in the stock super stock and have points of view, thought the Mopars got way too much advantage and let them keep it way too long. And of course, when the Fords came out went fast, they started punishing them immediately. And uh, I brought mine out. <clears throat> and the first race we went to, Sandy was still with me. And, and uh, I think in the 12th, 11th pass, I was in the winter circles having beaten Bill Skillman in the final. 
So I, I, I really appreciate working on the forwards. And a lot of my, my Mopar fans, you know, don't like it that, you know, I spent time doing that, but I, I it was another fantastic chapter and, and Sandy got to stand in the winter circles next to a Mustang as well as the time she stood in the winter circle next to the charger or challenger. But then as things unfolded here and with Holly, I was going to build an X275 or a, a Ultra street car which I was working on. And then this advent of this potential for this factory X class showed up and I kind of pulled back on that. And I was still working Holly thinking I was going to have to be there for another year or two to get to the, you know, the next transition to, to the next owner or make it public. And all of a sudden things went really well there. And they told me in March, uh, last year, uh, in 2021 that I could go home and I'd done my duty. And if I wanted to go home now, I could go home. And so I went home and, I called a guy who I'd loaned my engine to and said, I need my engine back because I'm going to go out and do factory shootout again. So then I wanted to bring the Blackbird back out. I knew that engine with that new Whipple three-liter blower would be fantastic. And then I spent, I had to really hurry because I didn't have any parts stockpiled and they were hard to get and all that stuff. And anyway, by the end of the season, we won a 767 uh, and a test hit. And I sent it out to Vegas because I was going to a horse race with my wife and and a guy who'd never been in the car and a crew guy who'd never touched a Mopar, let alone this Mopar. I just sent it out there to these two guys in Vegas and they ended up in the semifinals and they should have won, but we uh, got a little crazy to tune up and spun next to Stanfield or we would have been in the final and won that race. So the Blackbird kind of got to put, you know, the period on the sentence of its career. And now I'm trying to focus my energy on this Blackbird X for factory X. I'm going to be hard. It's going to be hard for me to set out with that car sitting behind me ready to race and, you know, stay focused on, you know, building this new car. But, at least that's my that's my plan to stay focused on building a new car and not tip my tip my toe back in that water because once I get in there I I'm a competitor and I'll have a hard time controlling myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's of, talk about of, this. <laughs> uh, let's talk about this Factory X class now. So I, I learned about it at Indy uh, this past year at the U.S. Nationals. I was talking to Ned Wallace, not uh, Ned Wallister or Wallison, I think his name is. He works for NHRA. Yep. yep. And he brought it to my attention. I thought it was you know cool so as far as i know like i said you know five speed manual tube chassis there are still a lot of you know steel components to the body that have to remain correct uh 10 and a half inch tire uh, yep. 66 inch wheelie bar maximum um any new developments you can tell us about with any new rules that they came out with well, they've tweaked some of the rules. They, they, there was at first there was an open rule on the clutch, and you, you know, had to run a manual, but you had a choice on the clutch. And of course, smaller diameter clutches have less inertia; they spin up faster. So, in pro stock, it's in vogue to run a six and a quarter triple. And people started talking about them. Then you're going to have to, you know, do clutch maintenance every pass. And for a guy like me who goes by myself, you know, with my wife, that's it. Uh, that's going to be pretty hard. And so anyway, they finally backed up the rule on that, made it an eight-inch minimum clutch disc. So I'm going to run a triple eight, uh, and and that makes hopefully serviceability less required between rounds. That's the, that's the dream anyway. So that's a that's a tweak. They they gave a crank center line a thirteen point one uh, off the ground, which you know, and a setback position in the in the Camaros and Mustangs and Challenger. The Challenger is different because it's so big compared to the other two. And then they've clarified some rules like where you can put your intercooler tank and several other things, but they've, you know, they keep tweaking the rules, you know, Lonnie Grimm, fantastic addition to the tech team at, at, uh, NHRA. I'd worked with him. Actually, he's the guy 
after I ran that seven second pass, I didn't, they didn't tell me, but they had to tear the car down. Of course, it makes sense. You know, all he wants to know it's a legit car. And, and they, you know, I, I really hadn't spent much time with Lonnie, met him a couple times as a tech guy, and he comes to the trailer, and we spent about six hours of quality time in my trailer tearing my car back down. But, but the funny thing about Lonnie is that made him different than any tech guy. He came and got my, as he walked up to my car, he pulled my data card out of my race pack. <laughs> he comes and hands it to me, and I said, what are you doing with that? He goes, I need to look at that. And I'd set the logging up. And of course I told you the whole story. I hadn't touched the car since November and I'd been playing around in the garage a little bit, but anyway, I had the logging stuff wrong. So it would reset and fill up the buffer like three times and every pass. And, and, I, and he said, pull up that pass. I want to look at it. I couldn't find it. He goes, yeah, sure. You can't. Oh. And I said, well, if you know what you're doing, I'd love you to find it for me. He goes, yeah, is it really there? I'm like, oh yeah, it's there. I mean, anyway, so he found it for me and, and I said, what are you looking for? And he showed me, and I realized that dude is a smart dude. I mean, he, yeah. he, uh, he looked at all kinds of things that you have to really, because you know, what he's really looking for is electronic manipulation, a torque converter, or mm-hmm. traction control or whatever, you know, because of course one of the big challenges of these cars is getting down the track with no traction control and nine inch tires and, you know, 15, 16 horsepower. So anyway, he, he was a very smart guy and I, and I kept bugging him on this factory, uh, experimental class and heard through the rumor mill through tommy lane's crew chief for through bill skillman the dominant you know factory shootout team uh that that they were going to do this class and he said stanfield knew about it so i called stanfield up and said is this real and he said yeah they're talking about it so then i started having a dialogue with my about the class and i put on hold doing the alter street thing and we were just going to build a car for this class. But as it turns out, you can't really use much of the original body. You got to use the steel hood and the steel rear fenders and quarters, but you can buy them from the factory. And so the donor car that I'd already had prepped and ready to start, you know, putting chassis in, it, it's still sitting there. And uh, maybe someday I'll build an X275 or alter out of it. But but this factory X thing became real. And and then we had to wait patiently for the rules. I think Lonnie got a text from me every week. Got them done yet? Got them done yet? I talked to Ned at the U.S. Nationals. Anyway, the, the concept is, you know, had been discussed for a long time. What if you took these factory shootout motors, making the kind of power they're making now, and put them in pro stock chassis? And, you know, pro stock today has its following, and there's lots of people who love it, and great drivers, and great history, and, you know, but the factory st- stock cars you know they wanted them to go faster because they're capable of going faster but you got to put a you know less than 750 cage in them which is a big tear up for a car like that one behind me and so they were kind of stuck so they decided to create this new class which is different than pro stock and different than factory showdown except it takes the factory showdown engine puts it in a lighter much more capable chassis that car back there weighs 3600 pounds this new car is supposed to weigh 2650. So you shed a thousand pounds right there. So if it ran that car ran 767, you take a thousand pounds of it, you could argue it runs 667. Wow. Just take a thousand pounds out of it. Yeah. Plus you get bigger tires. A 10 and a half W isn't a 10 and a half tire on a 16 inch rim, which is the mandated width of the rim that you have to run. It's actually about 13 inches of tire. So I'm very much looking forward to that engine that can go 760s, 750s in a 3,600-pound car. Do they expect the tire a brand that you have to run, or are you allowed to choose? Well, you're allowed to choose, but there's only one manufacturer currently offers that tire. Okay. And so it's Mickey Thompson's right now. But I think Hoosier has one. They just don't have a catalog, and they might be bringing it back out and develop a tire for the class. But anyway, it's going to be wild, and, and I've, you know, 
I, I've had a lot of cars. I love cars and, you know, on my street cars, I've always had manual transmissions, but I've never had a manual, you know, a real manual, a clutch in it, in a race car. Uh, and when I went to the drag strip with my car that I drove on the street to make some passes, but anyway, so I'm looking forward to running a manual transmission, you know, you're not a real drag racer, so you shift, I guess. And so, yeah, it's definitely gonna, more fun. Now, are, yeah. is there any fear of pro stock teams coming into this class with all of their data on five, you know, five speed manual transmissions and all their clutch data. Now you just said they have to run an eight inch minimum, which they're not doing in pro stock, but they are capable. If you bring one of those teams in, they can do whatever they want to do in between rounds. Whereas, you know, like you said, you're, it's you and your wife, you, you yep. can't do that kind of maintenance that they'll be able to do. Is there any fear that, and they bring in their money too and potential backing that they'll just run away with it. Well, I mean, there's always that kind of concern. And, and honestly, in the factory shootout, there was that concern. Uh, you know, I, I'd say because I was an underdog, I had a car that was behind everybody else and had all these disadvantages, which is how the Dodge was viewed, funny enough, in 2017. Uh, I probably was the first guy that, you know, that first year I went to the track 21 times, six times to race and the other times to test. And, and other teams weren't doing that as aggressively. Uh, and so there weren't, those kind of really super well-funded pro stock level, multiple crew chief member, you know, semi trucks, several million dollar a year kind of teams at that time when I entered, it was Holbrook and Barton and they were in many ways, the, the cream of the crop, uh, Watson, you know, Chuck Watson, senior, you know, there were other players too, but not to dissuade anybody, but the, but you know, those were the players and they didn't show up in semi truck. They were very smart, incredibly capable engine builders, racers and tuners, but they, you know, they didn't have a, a pro stock a world champion from Europe as their crew chief. And another guy's a crew chief and, you know, three extra motors. And, and that's what Skillman has. And several teams do not only Skillman, a lot of the teams do now. So if you look at the history, when those pro stock teams started making the transition to this class to give it a try, if, including in that 2016 year when I was there with my car, Eric Enders drove a drag pack at the U.S. Nationals in 2016. Very few people know it. Attempting to get into the shootout, couldn't make the cut. Uh, now, that not to be fair to Eric, as she was just driving a car that at the time I think uh, Joe Welch had put together for her. But the bottom, bottom line is there have been many pro stock teams come and go. And they, they don't have too many Wallies uh, to go with their adventure. And many of them left. Skillman is one of the teams that stayed and obviously has done fantastic. But there, you, without, you know, going through the list, there are a lot of pro stock teams that came over with those resources, with that kind of money. And, you know, it's certainly odd to go to the track now with the, with the setup I have and try to compete everybody has multiple crew members for the most part not not everybody but most people so it's it's already there factory shootout i'm already competing against that there uh it's true in this class they kind of gave the engine program you know which is what us factory showdown guys that are competitive have we already have the established engine program they gave us our engine program they gave it they gave us the transmission from pro stock so the pro stock guys have the advantage of knowing how to make five speed work and the clutch and all that i guess i guess maybe we have a little advantage you know for the teams that are you know stanfield's both but for the teams that just run the factory shootout we have a little bit of advantage if we have an established proven engine program which that car back there has the engine that that could put these cars well in the sixes yeah. Should put these cars well in a section. Just take a thousand pounds out of it, put it on a bigger tire, <clears throat> you know, where you can use a lot more of the power. You're not 
these cars back here, you don't use all the power for the first hundred foot. You can't. Right. So the, the hope is, is with these new cars, you're going to use it all. Plus you got five speed, you keep it up in its torque power band, although they're wide power bands. So I, I think they're going to go sixes over 200. Yeah. Uh, could they, because the factory show down cars don't wheelie anymore. They just, they kind of just drive out nose up in the yeah. air a little bit. It's cool. It's, it's a marvel of engineering to watch them transfer that kind of power to the ground. But you know, I'm a stock and super stock guy. I like to see, I like to see cars take off in the air. Um, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've only, I've only, you saw that run that I made that was 790 and it didn't do a big wheelie. And I, you know, I'd much rather do a big wheelie. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, and I, and of course I can't do wheelies. I have to make up for burnouts, which hurts my tire, but because, you know, like if I can't do a wheelie, then I'm going to do a damn big burnout. Burnout. Let's hurt valve and springs and eat up tires yeah. instead. Yeah. I don't um, care. So I you, mean, if, if I, going the route of the drag pack here, you're, you're kind of making life a little bit more difficult and expensive for yourself. I would think, because I, I do remember reading somewhere that your engine blocks, you know, are like, just six thousand dollars right right off the shelf right and then all the work that you have to put in and um i know in pro stock when they uh, instilled the uh the rev limit of what 10 10 5 i think it was that really hurt yeah. the uh Hit me the back bars, and they kind of just went yeah. away um slightly different animal than what you're dealing with but is it is it going to be challenging dealing with with what you have to deal with versus maybe what a chevy or the ford has to deal with well, I, I think it's going to be challenging for anybody who wants to do this class, just like it's challenging for anybody that runs those cars behind me, whether you run a Chevy or, or a Ford or a Mopar, it's challenging. Uh, you know, th those, those, some of those, you got to remember the Mopar, the ones that behind me started out with a truck engine. In it. And, and I went to my first race in the Gator Nationals in 2017 and qualified number six out of 17 with Barton and, and Holbrook in the field with a truck engine. So Mopars do have some advantages, despite the fact that they're bigger, they're way less aerodynamic, just because they're so much bigger frontal area. They have a longer wheelbase, they're naturally more heavy. So some of those disadvantages in this new class kind of go away, because obviously they're naturally heavy in part because that's built off a Mercedes E-Series platform that Chrysler got in its marriage with Daimler. And they, it's a five-fourth scale Challenger. It's actually bigger than my E-Body from 1973. So, so those are the disadvantages. The advantages are it's a Hemi. <laughs> you know, just to be funny, I mean it's it's a, you know it's got two, two plugs in it. Uh, it's got great airflow from the factory. Of course, LSs later LSs did too. Uh, the parts are robust. You know, uh, pretty robust parts can take a pretty big beating. The RPM capability of it in this current form with this aluminum block, which is not a factory, it's a factory race block like the LSX block and the Camaros like most people running the Cobra jets now a bare block. But the bottom line is it, there's some stuff that's more expensive and it's more challenging. But, you know, I, I think when, when people ask why you're on a Mopar, it's kind of like you ask people to climb Mount Everest, why they do it. And you have to say, well, if, if you don't understand, you're never going to understand. No, no, just kidding. I mean, once you're a Mopar guy, you're a Mopar guy. And despite my short time racing Fords for a while, I'm a Mopar guy. So it, it, it'll probably be a little harder to get parts. It'll probably be a little more expensive to get the base parts, you know, but, but the car itself, uh, aerodynamically is going to be worse, but you know, they, the cool thing, which is very different than the pro stock formula of this factory X is they have the ability to, these are three modern relevant engines. I think the draw to NHRA was, give somewhere else to go besides pro stock for people that are in factory shootout, which it became a pro class. And 
And then secondly, have cars that look relevant to people on the stands. They look like factory, you know, Challengers, Camaros, Mustangs, which are going to be building for at least a few more years. And there'll be plenty of them on the street forever for a long time. <laughs> and, and then lastly, use relevant engine platforms that are modern engine platforms. So the LS, the Coyote, and the Gen 3 Hemi are obviously modern engine platforms in production or shortly were in production. Uh, it's much more like a real stock eliminator car. They make more horsepower and more torque than pro stock engines by by a bunch now. Uh, they didn't start out that, but they've developed to the point they do now. That car back there does. And, and you know, you got these stock appearing cars, you know, make the wheelie bar rules and chassis rules. So you try to force them to do some of a wheelie because you're right. That's, that's something that's gone away. And, you know, have some un- exciting, unpredictable runs of a car that looks just like the one you could buy at the dealership going in the sixes and over 200 miles an hour banging five years when it goes down the track. I mean, I, if that, if that don't get your, if that don't, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. I mean, that's just, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that drag racers we live for. And for me, it's doing something different, you know, as much as I've loved the time I spend in the factory shootout, I, you know, I'm, I'm not getting any, I'm an old man. I'm not going to get any younger. And so I, I got to go do something different before I die. And I, and I had this idea that I should go on the sevens, you know, I should start in the, I started out in the thirteens and, you know, went to the twelves and then the elevens and the tens. I was watching a video the other day, my first nine second run in a 3,700 pound leaf spring, you know, Barracuda looked like a, looked scary <laughs> anyway and then you know i made it to the eights in the in the hemi and then i wanted to make it to the sevens and when i first got this car and told my crop i'm this gonna be the car gets me in seven he said no way these cars are never gonna go sevens i mean you gotta make it a 300 horsepower to go sevens they ain't gonna make it a 300 horsepower and anyway so now i want to go to the sixes before i get too much older i'm headed into 60 here and i gotta get to the sixes before i get to 60 and if i keep at this I'll be running top fuels by the time 90, 90, or <laughs> 90, hundred. I think the way I got this. I think out. it'll be a bunch sooner than that. It sounds like yeah. at this pace, yeah. uh, we're looking at about age 64 and a half. Right before social yeah. security kicks in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, my neck, my next drag car after this one will probably be electric, but the, but this last ice engine car, I internal combustion engine car will be this, uh, hopefully be this Blackbird X and hopefully, you guys, I have pictures to show you at some point, maybe some ET slips. But unfortunately, as all things are going through supply chain difficulties and everything, we're probably about two months behind schedule. Uh, I guess if I'm realistic, if I had about mid-year and can run one of the first exhibition races that they think maybe they'll have them at the Nationals running exhibition passes. They can run a comp eliminator until they're allowed to run an exhibition. And then in 23, there'll be a heads-up class for them is the point. Yeah, do you know when any of these exhibitions are slated? They don't, they haven't said, they said post mid-year, I think they're figuring, you know, some of the other folks that are way smarter and better than me, Mr. Stanfield, who you had on here, who, you know, he, he's probably won more Oscars than I've won rounds. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, one more, I mean, more, uh, more Wally's than I've won rounds. And, you know, that team with their capability and smarts, I, you know, I imagine they'll be one of the first guys out. Skillman, I mean, don't ever take it away from Tommy Lane, Joey, and Bill, and that whole crew of their Skillmans, they'll be out. I don't know if Barton's going to do one or not for anybody. I, I think that there's probably a, a person or two and that gets Barton engines will probably want to do one. I think there's probably a couple being built. I mean, if you listen to Lonnie, there's 15 or 20 people saying they're going to build. Well, one. I was just going to ask you, uh, do you, do you know approximately how many have you spoken yeah. to your friends and or adversaries about their interests and involvement? 
Well, I'm sure Stanfield and his crew will have. Yeah, we know for one. sure Stanfield yeah, is. Yeah, and, yeah. and I'm sure and Hol and Holbrook's Holbrook, now come out. Yeah, so he's, yeah. I, I've and, talked to him about. It. I want to have him come on and give us the Ford perspective, and you know, tell us all about what happened with the uh, with the Fords. Now, do you think people are gonna? Will Factory Showdown, as it is now, still have a following? Do you think um, their attendance will suffer? I don't. I don't think in terms of you know. People always say the factory showdown, you know, I had a debate with a pro stock guy, I won't name about whether or not this new factory X is going to have any following because it's going to be sandwiched between, you know, factory stock and pro stock. And he's a pro stock, you know, 500 cubic inch in a guy. And he loves that format. And I was trying to present some of the reasons this format might appeal to other people because the cars look more like cars because they have relevant engines. And, and, and the bottom line is the OEMs like the idea more than, than the current format pro stock. So, you know, you, you talk to those guys and you think, well, are these pro stock guys going to come do this? Well, this pro stock guy basically said, I'll never come do that. I don't see it. It's, it's a backward step for me to go from pro stock to run one of these factory X cars. The factory shootout guys, there's some, obviously, I just listed some that had run shootout now or had, and they're going to run one. And they might run both. And then the last thing I would say, and I had this conversation with David Davies, the, you know, the constant aviation CEO, that's the guy behind the sponsorship for the factory showdown. And I said, I don't think it'll take away. I think what will happen is some of these other teams will have another focus and then it'll make room for new teams to come into this that don't have the experience or the funding or the resources that, you know, the top guys do. And, you know, it's a 16 car qualifying field. If 30 guys show up, you know, 14, I'm going to go home pretty disappointed uh, if five or six of us go away, that's five or six more people that can bust into those top 16 cars. So I think, you know, there's growth for everybody. It's, it's supposed to looking at it as a smaller pie or a pie. There's going to be less pie for factory stock. I'd like to say it's a growing pie. If NHRA moves in the direction of some of the very successful, you know, other formats of drag racing that have moved forward and, and really bring people in. And of course, TV stars are created and the whole thing around those classes of small tire, no prep kind of things. If NHRA goes back to cars that are a little less predictable, a little more scary, a little more like factory looking cars, you know, uh, and, and as you pointed out a million times, as you imagine from my history and my brother's participation, you know, people miss that stock and super stock are already that. And as you pointed out, if you want to watch cars do unpredictable, wild things, including big wheel stands and banging gears and you know, having to drive a car, not have it drive itself. And, you know, you push the shoot button. I mean, you watch stock and super stock. It's fantastic. You know, now the only thing is, it, you know, it doesn't have as much of the modern muscle in there. Of course, with the package cars, there's a lot of modern muscle. And they, you know, they've proved, you know, my brother and I talked about this, you know, it's a shame how that went for stock super stock when i was a young man standing in the staging lanes in 1979 and i was racing the 1973 barracuda okay i mean you know it was it was a it was a it was a you know when i was racing 1973 barracuda it was a 10 15 year old car right uh or not even that it was it was nine years old uh and so why aren't people racing nine-year-old cars now i stand with my brother at a national event next to his you know 71 t37 i said if guys our age were racing these kinds of cars this old when we were racing in 1979 guys have been racing 1918 you know model t's i mean because you're you're, you're standing here with next to a 71 gto which is you know 50 years old and racing it 
So how do we get new people and new cars in this? And and the package cars were just so expensive for people. So it's cool that you see Mopar and N4 and Chevy getting other cars approved so people can run these late model body styles in stock and super stock. Now, I'm not going to say I don't love watching a 68 Hemi car run because I'd be a liar if I said that. I, I, I'm not going to say I don't watch a, you know, a shoebox, you know, a little four-speed 327 thing through the years, you know, you know, Snoopy, you know, I mean, I love, love, I love your car. I, I mean, but I think, you know, NHRA has got to think about how do we modernize some of our classes and move forward. So I don't think the factory X is going to be a way to shrink some other adjacent class. I think it's going to add another dimension, another group of racers who want to come do something different. And if they're exciting to watch and they're as fast as we hope they are, uh, you know, it may well bring some people away from watching street outlaws run. Right. Or, yeah. or they'll watch something to watch. That's what I'm hoping. I let, let your factory, let the factory show down, let the factory X be the uh, modern technology and let stock and super stock be the car show. Let it that doesn't have to be yeah. the fans don't have to identify with stock and super stock as, oh, I want to go buy that tomorrow. They can identify right. stock and super stock as those cars are cool. This is like being at a car show where they go down the track and do wheelies. That's what I've been pushing to NHRA. Use that avenue and stop trying to use the modern technology avenue. That's what factory showdowns for. That's what this new FX class is for. That's what Pro Stock was supposed to be, but you know but, but like as you pointed out many as you pointed out many times that 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 final that got so many views it was a great job by the way when you had the uh, kennedy on from nhra i mean you did a great job pointing out like you know why don't you promote this stuff i mean th- these cars are awesome i love watching stockers and super stockers run i mean i like a lot of stock and super stock guys and factory shootout guys i'll go to the stands and watch stock and super stock run i don't i don't think i've seen a top fuel pass after I started kind of being yeah. Leah's teammate and I had a buddy right. in there racing, uh, you know, I, I stopped watching because I mean, I don't care about top fuel, but anyhow, the bottom line is, you know, I, I think you're doing a great job with this podcast and, and, and if they could get more airtime on TV, watching those badass 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s now, now in the, you know, beyond that cars and stock lemonade run, I think. And the factory shootout stuff is its own little thing that grew out of there I think it's a cool new idea to expand that scope to factory X and it's something new and different. And I'm a new and different guy. I get kind of, once I, once I won the first race for that Mustang, my wife, who was my late wife, who was alive time said, what are you gonna do with the Mustang now? I said, well, I'm gonna race this year and we'll, we'll see what Ford wants to do next year, but I don't need to race anymore. I kind of proved my point. I just want to want to get a Ford and see if I can make Ford go fast, you know? And, and, uh, She's like, what do you mean? You put all this effort into it, all this stuff, learning this new engine, learning this new program, and now you're going to do something that's, I, I don't do this to make money, man. I do this to, you know, have something challenging and hard to do and, and to hang out with cool guys and people at the track. And I, I don't, you know, I, the factory X is just perfect timing. And so hopefully it's going to be a next cool chapter. I, and I may suck at it completely. I mean, I've had some success you know, modicum of success with that program in the factory shootout cars, but I don't know. I mean, this is very different. I could be a total loser. I mean, I might even qualify. I, I don't know. I well, mean, we, and that, we that kind of fear. And we know your work ethic, so we we highly doubt that. I, if it takes you some time to get going, whatever, we know you will get going. So, and we're we're excited to watch you out there. And I like seeing diff- all the brands being represented, and I like seeing manufacturer involvement, and I hope there's plenty of it. 
So uh, we definitely wish you luck. Now, Jeff, you also mentioned that you were working on an EV, what, the EV dragster for Don Garlitz too? Yeah, that's kind of a wild story when I, you know, I worked for Caterpillar. I worked for General Motors for about five to six years. And then I went to work for a, a supplier making exhaust systems up in Toledo that made them for all the big three. And a short time after that, a guy from Chrysler reached out to me that I'd met and said, we're going to use JV with Mitsubishi and build these cars called the Diamond Star cars. And I wanted to see how the Japanese were just kicking our butt in the country. This is like 1980, late 1980s. And they were just taking it to us. And anyway, so I thought, well, the best way to learn is, so I got lucky. I got to be one of the first 30 people. I went and lived and worked in Japan, learned all their secrets, which is basically common sense, uh, you know, common sense readily applied as opposed to never applied. Uh, and and uh, anyway, I came back and, you know, I, I did all that stuff and and I, I, I went to work for Caterpillar and, you know, as I worked at Caterpillar, we started looking at electrification because I became the company's, the head of the drivetrain business and made transmissions and axles and everything in the drivetrains for all of Cat. And of course, we were looking at electrification. In fact, big mining trucks that back then were mainly electric and Caterpillar gained advantage by having the only big mechanical truck. A torque convert weighs 3,000 pounds, a transmission weighs 12,000 pounds, a, a 4,000 horsepower, 1.3 million pound vehicle that you think you got to take two flights of stairs to get to the top shelf and then you drive at 42 miles per hour. I mean, they make some cool stuff. And, and so they wanted to go electric and we were working on electrification and we did a bunch more electric stuff and it's much more efficient many things. And so on a trip down to one of those races with my late wife, I said, can we go see Gartless at his museum? She goes, well, he's, gonna, he's not going to be there. Said, yeah, he's there. And you get to meet him. And I've been telling you how much of a hero he is. Anyway, I went to meet him. Had a little conversation. I, I reminded him that I, he signed an autograph for me when I was 12 and it changed my life forever. And that since then I made a shit ton of money and spent almost all of it on drag racing. And he got, a, <laughs> he, he got, he got, a, he got a kick out of it. And we talked and we started talking about electric, he had an electric dragster and I was talking about a Caterpillar and electric programs. Fast forward, uh, four years later, I'm working for Holly and Holly wants to start learning this EV stuff and high performance EVs. And the CEO is driving a Tesla now. I was like, oh my God, these things are incredible. And we got to get out ahead of this. So I said, you want me to call Garlis and see if he wants help on this program? He said, yeah. So I called Don Garlis and he said, yeah, you want to help me, Jeff? I remember that whole conversation. You know, can you help on this dragster? So he had gone 189 miles per hour at that point in a dragster. Uh, we did some stuff, put control systems on, data acquisition, went down to medium to test. And, you know, we had a bunch of problems and he, you know, he made a pass. It would have been a 200 mile an hour pass. But we had to shut off. And uh, anyway, I got to hang out with the legend you know, my, my hero and, you know, what a, what a fantastic man. I mean, just, I mean, if you're lucky enough to be in his presence, you know, how inspirational it is to have this guy who's, you know, at the time, 88 years old, trying to be a pioneer again and be the first guy to go 200 and be, and he wants to do it. Cause he wants it. He wants people to have fast, economic, easy to run cars. And he's not a big fan of the whole fuel program and how it's evolved. Yeah. And so, you know, EVs to him are, a way to restart the clock and the, you know, the, the innovators and the people who are thinking out of the box and having to adapt all kinds of stuff. And, you know, he's a huge, I mean, he's, you know, that's who he really is. He's just a madman innovator. And so he built this electric car and we got involved in it. Uh, it kind of went dormant for a little while, but when I was down in Florida, uh, actually about a month ago, I just happened to get a call from him. He's like, Hey, can you get reinvolved in this anyway? And you know, I know you don't work at Holly, but it's just Holly want to help us. So anyway, we're working, we're talking about it again, you know, the other night it was, uh, 1203 
a.m. in Florida. I get a text of him from him showing me the car back together with some modifications he's made to it to make it faster and do things. This 90-year-old guy out God. the shop at midnight wow. sending me a text of his car. And I felt so bad because the next day I was telling this guy I came over for dinner. I was talking about this thing with Garlis. And I was like, this is like, I, I had to pinch myself. Like, I'm like, I'm talking to Don Garlis like he's my brother. And, you know, like, calling me. And they're like, and he goes, oh, yeah, shit. I, he sent me a text last night at midnight. <laughs> I forgot to respond. Because, man, you don't even <laughs> respond to his text. <laughs> so I sent him a text. I said, Don, I'm sorry. You know, us old people are in bed at that time. <laughs> yeah, <that's funny. laughs> I mean, that guy, I mean, he is, he is, he's such a, I mean, he's such a good, good man and such a legend. That, anyway, so th- anybody wants help. I mean, I, I'm not looking forward to EVs being the only thing that runs a drag strip. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm an old guy. I like noise. I, I can listen to cars go by. No, that's a Pontiac. That's a Chevy. That's an LS. That's a Hemi. I mean, I love the sound of cars. And, you know, I, I've had all the opportunity to drive really fast EVs and they're, they're spectacular, but they don't make noise. Like, like they make a noise. It sounds like a slot car, Man. but I'll get over that. I mean, I, I did learn a long time ago when I worked for Corvette, we took a bunch of cars to the track one day and I was still a Mopar guy. I was trying to show these development engineers how to, you know, how to drive on drag strip. And I got to drive all these, you know, fun little project cars, like a, a twin turbo Corvette C4 and all this stuff. And I made all these passes going sideways, like a funny car driver. And I was just having a blast. And I realized then when you step on the gas pedal and you're going down the track and you're going 150 miles an hour sliding sideways, you don't care if the engine's got push rods or overhead valves or overhead cams, or, you know, it's a coyote or in, in the driver's seat, it's, it's, a blast and, and electric cars even more so because of their instant acceleration. So it's coming. And, you know, I'm an old guy. I'd like to think when I'm 85, I won't be completely irrelevant sitting at home talking about when I used to run these gas engine cars. When I look out in the parking lot and see my, my relatively low cost economy electric car that could outrun my stock eliminator car. So anyway, that's that's kind of my view of electrics. And, I, and I'm kind of with Don. There's all kinds of infrastructure challenges. It probably won't happen as fast as you think. Uh, people will be running. My wife's a horse racer. Uh, people still race horses. You know, they wouldn't they wouldn't ride them to work, you know, and they're not real fast compared to a car. So, I, you know, 20, 30 years from now, we'll probably still be racing 80 Mustangs, doing big wheelies for a very, you know, select group of people who still enjoy that. And then we'll get in our electric pickup truck and pull them home. That sounds good to me. Yep. Well, Jeff, it's been, it's been an honor and uh, I really enjoy you coming on here. It was, you know, it was wonderful. I learned a lot, learned a lot about your life. We wish you lots and lots of luck with the uh, factory X class. And we know that you will, you will not disappoint us. So um, also everybody out there, uh, I want to remind everyone South Georgia Motorsports Park division two has their first race um, this weekend, February 11th and 12th. So anybody that's heading there, good luck to you. And Jeff Turk, good luck to you, sir. Thank you very much. Well, thank thank you. And, you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I feel, you know, I'm incredibly humbled. I mean, I see guests like Stanfield and all these world champions that, you know, they've done more in drag racing. I'll do the rest of my life, no matter how hard I probably try. So I think it's fantastic that you let a little guy like me, kind of private small program it's a big deal for me to get on here and go talk about you know what we're working on and so i i I can't tell you how much i appreciate it and i appreciate the show because i get to see other people's stuff and i still love stock super stockers and and i just want to thank all the people you know that that helped me do this you know i'm a pretty small part of a big thing uh it was 
worked with my wife and includes Tony Bischoff and Jason Cohen in the past, now now Craig Liberty, uh, you know, and, and I just, you know, while we're a small team at the track, we have a huge group of people behind us and, and, and people like you who are willing to let us tell our story is a huge reason we're here. I mean, I, I, I would have been over on Superstock and probably never done this heads up stuff had it not been for people like you who help promote what we're doing and get some support for it. So thank you so much. What, what you guys do it's a great show i love it I'll, i'm gonna i'm gonna try to catch up with my brother on donations you know i found out <laughs> before the show started that my brother don turk stock limiter guy 71 237 he's donated about five times more money than i have so i'm gonna have to fix that right. anyway well we appreciate that for sure thank you Jeff. all right man thanks a lot guys greatly appreciate it thanks jeff thanks good bobby luck. and good luck and, and good yeah. luck to you so i can come see you one more of your wallets before uh, you know yeah. I, Thanks. Excellent. All right. You guys have a great day. Uh, Brian should be back with us again next week. Um, thanks a lot. Classracingtoday.com is our website. If you want to help support the show, go there. Uh, join the group that's supporting the show personally. Thanks a lot. We appreciate all the, the support and donations and sharing it out to all your friends. Classracingtoday.com. If you want to have any, uh, have any questions or comments, classracingtoday at gmail.com is our email address. Thanks a lot for listening. Have a wonderful day. We will see you all next time. Have a great week.